Welcome to the Rocky Valley Podcast. This is Pastor Jason Moe. We're glad you stopped in to have a listen, and we hope that this blesses you in some way. If you have your Bibles, open them up to the book of 1 John. The book of 1 John, chapter 1. We'll be in the ninth verse. 1 John, chapter 1, we'll be in the ninth verse this morning. When... The Puritans would have meetings. These are early, some of our early church fathers, you might say, here in this land. When, when they would have meetings, their meetings would just be peppered and known by the amount of people that would flood the altars. And not, not people necessarily giving their lives to Jesus for the first time, but the people who were of the church coming to confess their sin before God. They would be so moved by the meeting that they would just come and confess their sin before God and uh, people would begin to question the Puritans because of the amount of confession that their services would be marked with. They would say, well, it's, it's a fake outpouring of emotion. There's, there's nothing real there in what they're doing. Uh, and and the, the great Puritan pastor, John Edwards, an, an author, and if you want to look up any writings of a man who I believe was truly anointed by God and was truly living a life consecrated by God, go and find the writings of the great Puritan pastor, Jonathan Edwards. But he would remark when people would say that, he would say, the devil has nothing to gain by moving the people of God to confession." In other words, he would say that the devil, the great tempter, the great deceiver, the one who would draw our attention away from the Father, has nothing to gain by drawing the people of God to confession. So when people would question their motive, he would say, for someone to come and confess their sin before a holy God cannot be a work of the devil. He has nothing to gain by that. It has to be a work of the Holy Spirit that people would be moved to confession. In other words, you could say that regular confession in the church and in the life of the believer is a good thing. It draws you nearer to God. And yet, we've gotten to the point where most of us would look strangely if the altar were littered this morning with God's people just merely confessing his sin before him. Uh, most of us would sit in our pews and look and go, well, I wonder what's wrong with him. I wonder what's wrong with her. I, I wonder what he or she has going on that they would need to go down to the altar this morning. I wonder what the problem is. We sit there and we think, well, I can do my business from here. And you can. I'm not saying you can't pray in your pew. But I am saying there is something about responding to the Holy Spirit's conviction on your life. When the Holy Spirit presses upon you, either through the sermon or through a song about the mountains and the valleys and God, through a song, the Revelation song, Holy is the Lamb who was slain. If you're pressed upon by the Lord that you have something in your life that you need to do business with God about and you don't make your way before him to do that business, you are quenching the Holy Spirit, not just in your life, but perhaps throughout the house. You could very well be quenching the Holy Spirit's movement by not being obedient. And so this morning, I want us to dive into 1 John. We're just looking at one verse together this morning. And we'll be looking almost word for word through the first part of this verse. And then we're going to run out of time and we're going to take the last part all at once. But we're going to look kind of word for word through this verse. 1 John chapter 1 verse 9. 
And the, the theme of this morning's message is why confession is good. So why, why should we confess as a people? Let's all stand in honor of the reading of the holy and inerrant infallible words of our holy God, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. And if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let us pray. Father God, we come before you as sinful people, Lord Jesus. The old saying goes, we're just sinners saved by grace and no more accurate a statement could be made about anyone in this house today except for the person who's not yet been saved by your grace, Lord Jesus. And so I pray that in your house this morning, in your house this morning, all the people that, that call you Abba Father, Lord God, would draw nearer to you in confession And if there be one here that doesn't know you as their personal Lord and Savior, that they too would draw near you through confession, Lord Jesus. That we would turn to you, Jesus. That we would live in the shadow of the cross, under the blood of the Lamb, and be cleansed of all of our unrighteousness. If there be any spirit in this place that ain't your Holy Spirit, Lord God, would you kindly kick it out the front door at this moment, Lord, and let us draw nigh to you that you be glorified, and it's in your name we pray. And all God's people said, amen, Amen, and you may be seated. The first thing that I want us to consider this morning is the precursor that is to be remembered. The precursor that is to be remembered. Uh, A precursor or a prerequisite, something that must first be done in order for something else to happen. And there's an important pre-requirement right here in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9. There's a very important kind of pre-requirement. First thing we see is a little bitty word to start this verse. It's just two letters, in fact, but it's quite meaningful. That word is if. If. Now, in the Greek, that word means if. Those of you that are wondering. In Hebrew, it also means if. It's always a conditional statement contained in those two letters. If. If. And so he's fixing to say, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But before we can be forgiven of our sins and cleansed of our unrighteousness, there is a big word that starts it. It says, if there is something that we must do before we can get that. And it reminds us that while some of the promises of God are unconditional, some of those promises are conditional. Let let me put it like this. Some of the promises that I make to my children, they're unconditional. You are my child. I will always love you. There is nothing that you can do to make me love you more. There is nothing you can do to make me love you less. You're my child and I love you. But some of the promises that I make my children are quite conditional in their nature. If You finish your chores, we can play baseball. If you make good grades, we'll go somewhere special. So we're not going to go somewhere special if the grades are not where they're supposed to be. It's a conditional promise. Some of God's promises are without condition. He says, praise God, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. My strength will be perfected in your weaknesses. All of these are unconditional promises, but God also, though, makes us some conditional promises. Remember, 
at the dedication of Solomon's temple. He said, if I cause the rain to stop, the locusts to devour the field, if, if my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face, then I shall turn from heaven, hear their prayers, and heal their land. When will he heal their land? If they humbly get down before him and seek his face. It's a conditional promise. God says, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, then you can move a mountain. But Jesus says, if you abide in me, then you ask what you ask and it shall be done for you. This morning we have a condition from Scripture that may be one of the most important conditional statements that we see in any of Scripture. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. If we confess them. So first we see the condition. But next, let's look at the audience to whom he is writing. So that next word, if, who? Good job, Miss Belinda. If who? Right, the rest of you are going to have to wake up. If we. we. There you go. All right. If we. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say if they, if sinners, if the world, if mom or dad, if my brother, if my sister, if my friend, if my son or my daughter. He puts it right in our wheelhouse, you could say. He says, if we. Keep in mind, this whole book of 1 John, this whole epistle, it is written to believers. All right, a lot of people want to look at it and they want to pull out verses about sin and say, well, well, he must have wrote that letter to the lost and dying world. No, in fact, this letter was written to believers. So he is writing to the church. He's writing to those who have already cried out to Jesus. And he's saying, if we, inclusively, if the church will confess its sins. So how do you know that, preacher? I'm glad you asked. I'm going to tell you. Many people would call 1 John 5, 13, the theme verse. Flip over to 1 John 5, 13 real quickly because we're going to need to keep it in mind today. It's kind of the theme verse of the entire letter. These things I have written to who? You who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know and have eternal life and you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. These things I have written to those who believe in the Son of God. This entire letter, the meaning of this entire letter is that it is written to the church. And so when he says, if we, he's saying, if the church, if all of us, all of us who gather together and call ourselves blood-bought, redeemed children of God. He's saying, we can't pass the buck off to the lost and dying world when it comes to confession. We have to realize that we have to confess our sins before a holy God. We still have to humble ourselves and come before the holiness of God, acknowledging that we fall so short. The point I want to make here is simply this. As a child of God, you will never get so holy that you don't need to confess your sins to God. You are not going to accomplish that purpose and that objective here on this earth. You'll never get so big and no holy that, that you don't need to confess your sins. In fact, 
If you've gotten to the point that you've gone any length of time in your life without needing to confess your sins to God, then you have not become more holy. You have shifted your opinion of what sin is to be your opinion and not God's opinion. Because if we look at sin the way that God looks at sin and define it the way that God defines it, we'll realize that we need to be in a continual state of confession before God for the, for the way that we don't live. In fact, I would say that once you come to know Christ and the longer you walk with Christ and the more you study the words of Christ and the more you pray to Christ, you'll find yourself not confessing less and less, but you'll find yourself confessing more and more. So what do you mean, preacher? The longer I live with Christ, the better I should get at living like Christ. No, no, no. The longer you live with Christ, the more you'll get closer to the mind and the life of Christ, the more you'll realize the things in your life fall so short. But you'll find yourself confessing about a total different set of sins, won't you? You see, let me put it to you like this. When I first came to know Christ, when I was just a babe in my faith, I might have considered it a good day if I didn't tell a lie. I might have considered it a, a, a good sinless day if I didn't steal from someone or if I didn't punch someone in the face when they got on my nerves, if I didn't cuss someone out, if I didn't chase someone down in a fit of road rage when I first got saved, that was a pretty good day. Still a pretty good day sometimes. But the longer I live with Christ... And the closer I get to the word of God and to his ways and the more that I study his ways, I find myself confessing not, not for sins like robbing banks or, or road rage. I find myself confessing to God for an attitude that I had. God, please forgive me for my motive in why I did that. Maybe I did something was good, but I didn't do it with the right attitude. And I find myself having to find my way to my knees. Say, God, please forgive me, not just for what I did, but for the way in which I did it. The way my mind was when I did it. If you read the Sermon on the Mount, you'll see that Jesus doesn't call the act of killing another person murder. He says the act of thinking about killing someone is murder. So the closer you get to God, the more and more and more you find yourself confessing. You'll say, I can't believe the way that I live my life. I can't believe the thoughts that I have in my life. Look with me at this third word. We're still in the first three words. If we confess, confess. Let's not read this word too quick and miss out on what he's saying. It's an interesting word. It's more than just an acknowledgement that there is sin, right? Confession of sin is more than just that, you know, that blanket statement that we make when we talk among other believers. We go, oh, brother, I fall short every day. Confession of sin means way more than just acknowledging that there is sin in your life. It even means more than regretting the sin in your life. You don't have to be a Christian to regret sin in your life. If you don't believe me, find your way down to the local jail on any Sunday morning and wake up next to the man that got a DUI on Saturday night. He regrets what he did, either because he lost his license or because his head is thumping twice bigger than it should. He regrets the thing that he did. Whether or not he's a Christian or not, he regrets his sin. Go find yourself 
uh, up next to someone who's just committed a heinous crime. And I can promise you that more often than not, they will regret their sin. You don't have to be a Christian. So the so confession of sin is more than acknowledging that there's sin. It's more even than regretting that there is sin. It's deeper than that. That word, confess, is a combination in the Greek of two words. And that word comes together as homologios. All right, now you don't have to write it down, but I'm going to tell you, just it spoke to me this week. All right, so if you break down that word, homologos, you get two Greek words. One, homo, which means the same. Logos, which means word. So what it literally says is that if we same word our sin. So ultimately what it's saying is if we, if the people of God look at their sin the same way God looks at their sin. That means that we have to see our sin the same way that God sees our sin in order to be in an act of confession. So why is that important, brother? Well, think with me. If you don't see your sin the same way God sees your sin, then your confession may look more like this. Well, yes, I did that. But did you see what they did to me first? That's not really a confession of your sin. That's not looking at your sin the way that God looks at your sin. He hates your sin. He can't be in the presence of your sin. And you're trying to justify the fact that you sin because that's what we do. You say, well, I love this one. Yeah, I mean, I, I did, I did, I did that, but I mean, of course I did it. You know, my daddy had a hot temper, so it ain't no wonder I lost my temper. My mama, she, she did that, you knew mama. That's just how she was. Uh, of course I sinned, that's, well, that's just who I am. I can't help who I am, brother. Really? You're right. You can't help who you are, but you know who can help who you are? Father God. And you know what God says about your sin? That if you begin to look at it the same way that he does, and that means that you begin to hate it the way that he does, then no longer do you say things like, it's just the way I am. You start to say, it's not the way I want to be. It's not who I am. I am blood-bought and redeemed and I have to confess my sin before God and I have to see it the way that he sees it. I have to acknowledge what it is and know that I have a problem inside of me because as long as we justify our sins, we just keep right on doing them. Until we recognize that we have a problem and it is us, then we're not going to do anything to move on. Until we get to the point where we say, God, I see my sin the way that you see my sin. That attitude I had, it was wicked. That deed that I did, it was sinful. The thing that I did that I shouldn't have done, it was a transgression against you, God. The thing I should have done that I didn't do, God, that was a sin. And until we get to the point that we see our sin the way that God sees our sin, then we'll continue to justify it with statements. It's just who I am. That's the way mama was. That's the way daddy was. Did you see what they did to me? There's no place in God's word where it talks about 
the justification of sin based on the actions of another group of sinful people. I have not seen it. I have studied throughout the Bible. If you find the scripture that says it's okay to sin when somebody sins first, let me know and we'll talk about it. But I've never seen it. God's word says your sin belongs to you. And your place is to see it the same way God sees it and confess it before him. So first, if we confess, let's look really quickly at some practical ways that we need to confess. What are some practical things from the Word of God that we need to do to confess regularly? First, let's look at Matthew 6, 11 through 12. We need to confess regularly. Regularly. Here in the model prayer, Jesus says what? Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Do not lead us to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Notice right up there. Give us this day our what? Daily bread. Repetitive. So the mind and the model prayer. This is Jesus. All right? This is the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is standing on the mountain and he's projecting to the people and he says this. If, if you do this, if you're going to pray, here's the model of how you should pray. And he says, give me this day our daily bread. The idea is that the believer will daily thank God and ask God for their provisions. And then he goes on and says, what should you do next? When you're praying each day, thanking God for your daily bread, you should ask him to forgive you your sins. The idea from Scripture is not that we would confess on occasion, but that we would confess regularly in our life of prayer. So regularly we should confess to God. What else should we do? I think we should confess our sins sincerely. Sincerely. In other words, you might say this. God doesn't look at the outward appearance. You might be able to fool me. You may be able to fool the other people in this church. You may be able to fool your children. You may even be able to apologize to your wife and get her to forgive you even when you're not really sorry. But do you know who you will not fool? According to 1 Samuel 16, 7, where does God look? But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or his physical stature because I have refused him. God says, I do not look on the outside of man. God's word says that he looks to the heart of man. You can fake it all you want to with your confession. You can come back here to the office and sit down with me and convince me pretty easily that you have confessed your sin before God and you're truly sorry for it. Do you know how hard you'll have to try to convince me? You'll have to say something like, Brother Jason, I'm a sinner and I've asked God to forgive me. And I'm going to take you at your word because I basically take people at their word most of the time. But if you haven't truly confessed that sin, who you think you're fooling? Some dumb old preacher in the office? Congratulations, I've been fooled a whole bunch of times. But you fooling me don't help you out at all. You can tell your wife, I'm sorry for the way that I lived. But if you're not really sorry for the way that you live, the person that you're fooling is yourself in thinking you're going to get by with it because God looks at the heart. So when we confess our sins, we have to confess them regularly and we have to mean it sincerely from the heart. What else though, real quickly? Regularly, sincerely, and we should confess humbly. Humbly before God. The, the Hebrews writer says that we come boldly to the throne of mercy, but it doesn't say that we come proudly 
In other words, it doesn't say that we come with any kind of, of cockiness. We don't come that way. We come boldly to the throne of grace. But James 4, 6 says, 4, 6 says that he opposes the proud but gives what? Grace to the humble. So we want the grace of God in our lives. I don't think there's anybody that wouldn't raise their hand and say that we need the grace of God in our lives. The Hebrews writer says we come boldly to the throne of mercy. But what that means is not that we come proud. According to James 4, 6, what it says is that we have to come in this way. I can come boldly to the throne of mercy knowing that God is going to forgive me of my sins. I come boldly to the throne knowing that I can be forgiven of my sins but realizing that I don't deserve the forgiveness I'm about to get. I don't deserve the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Because you know what happens when you start to think you deserve it? Watch out. You've started to view yourself as God. And no longer the holiness of God is important. You've started to try to live to your standards and not the standards of Jesus. Because we don't deserve anything but death. You want to know what we deserved? Hell. We deserve to be born and to pass directly to hell. But by the grace of Jesus Christ, we can come and ask him to forgive us of our sins. And he is faithful and just to forgive them. But we must come boldly, but we also must come humbly. So first, there's a precursor. Next, I want us to see that there's a problem that is to be recognized. If we confess our sins. If we confess our sins. I think there are some implications there in that statement. One is that we have sins to confess. We see John writes in such a way that we're reminded just whose sins we are confessing. You see, I think a lot of times in our churches particularly, we spend an awful lot of time trying to fix the sins of everybody else. We, we spend an awful lot of time trying to get forgiveness for somebody else for their sins and not enough time looking at our sins and saying, this is what I need to be confessing before God. Because I want us to notice that the word for sins there is plural. John could have written, if we confess our sin, and it could have been interpreted at that point as perhaps our sin debt, so that inherited debt of sin that we have from Adam, that, that just thing that we're born with, that we're sinners but he goes further, he says, not just our sin nature, we get that we have to be forgiven of that, but we need to confess our many personal sins, the very sins that belongs to us. And there's something specific, I think, about recognizing the sin that leads us to a, a type of confession where it's the result of really being sorry for what you've done. Right? When you recognize that it's your sins, it, it kind of leads to a total different attitude in your time of confession. Let me give you this example. Let's just say that you came in this morning in a really bad mood. Anybody ever come to church in a really bad mood? You understand what I'm saying. You come into church in a really bad mood, and the first person that crossed you, you told them all about it. And I don't mean you told them about your bad mood. You told them everything they had done. Told them everything they did wrong, heaven forbid you may even called them a name you shouldn't have called them. You said things about them you shouldn't have said. You said things to them you shouldn't have said because you're not going to be gossiping. You're going to go and say it to their face. 
And you did something that you really shouldn't do and you turned around and you walked right back out of this church after church. But as the week went on and you weren't in a bad mood anymore, you realized that you didn't act the way you ought to acted on Sunday morning. So Wednesday night you came to church and you went up to them and you said something like this. Boy, if I offended you in any way the other day, I'm sorry. It's okay, right? At least you made an attempt. But it doesn't carry the same depth as if you went to them and said, listen, the other day, when I said your clothes didn't match and your mama was mean, and then I called you a, a stinky meanie, I'm sorry. Because it wasn't really anything about you. It was about me and where I was that day. I am so sorry. And not if I offended you in any way, but I'm sorry. I don't know if you were offended by it or not, but I offended you in the way that I acted. I had an offense against you in the way that I acted. Isn't that a different response? All of you can think of a time when somebody's come and you thought their apology was sincere. My children are out here right now. I'm fixing to let them know that daddy knows more than they think he knows. Do you know that there's a lot of times that I know one of them smacks the other one in the side of the head and it ain't an accident? And they come and say something like, well, I said I was sorry. Usually Carter's doing the hitting. All right. I said I was sorry. But it doesn't mean anything, right? Because we know you aren't really sorry. You know you did it on purpose. We know you tried to do it. But I can also tell when they come and they've legitimately done something and they're truly sorry for it. Can't you? You can tell. Well, see, there's something different about taking ownership of your sin and saying, God, I see it the way that you see it. And I'm sorry, God, that I lived that way. We have to recognize this problem the way that God recognizes. I believe the concept here of confessing our sins and taking ownership of how bad I am is not just generic but specific. And, and I want us to know why it's important though. You know, Great job, Brother Jason. You did a good job of making me feel bad about the fact that I'm a sinner. You even made me recognize that my attitude is part of the problem, but you never did even tell me why it was important. Well, I'm going to tell you why it was important. Why is it important? Look back at verse 6 with me real quickly. We're not going to stay here long. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So if we say we have fellowship with Christ, we walk in darkness, we're telling us a lie. So John is writing, right? In John 5, 13, he said he's writing to those who say that they're believers in Christ so that we may know that we're saved. I'm going to paraphrase it. John says he's writing this letter to the church so that we can know that we're saved. And he says here in 1, 6 that if we don't walk in the light, then we walk in the darkness. And so this could kind of go two ways. We don't have fellowship with Christ when we don't confess our sins. Because if we don't confess our sins, we continue to walk in the darkness. So this could mean two things. Maybe your sin has made you grow so cold. Maybe you've gotten so used to your sin that you, you don't enjoy Christ the way you used to enjoy Christ. You don't enjoy 
fellowship with Christ the way that you once did. It doesn't feel the same way when you read your Bible. It doesn't feel the same way when you come to the house of the Lord. It doesn't feel the same way when you pray that it once felt. Usually the problem is your sin that is separating you from Christ. Because I can tell you that he has not moved not one single solitary inch further away. The only person that's moved is you. The only thing that's moved you is your sin. And so if we don't confess our sins regularly before God and we don't see them the way that he sees them, then we can drift from our fellowship with God. But it could mean something else, quite frankly. A life that is not marked by sorrow for our sins, that results in a regular confession of our sins, could very well be an indicator that we are not saved. It could very well mean that we aren't saved because a child of God will have their life marked with confession for the distance that they feel between them and God. We have to live in a state of confession because it brings us in to a state of communion. And we want to walk in a state of communion with Jesus. We don't want to feel distant. But quickly as we close, the precursor, the problem, and the person through which we find our resolution. The person through which we find our resolve. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins, he, Jesus, will forgive us. Can I just tell you all something this morning? I am so thankful that my forgiveness is not based on my faithfulness. I am so thankful that my forgiveness is not based on my righteousness. You know, quite often Satan will come and knock on the door of my mind. And when I open that door, he'll say something like, Huh, preacher, look at the way you're acting. And you call yourself a preacher? Huh. You're going to counsel with them with all the problems that you've got in your own life and you're going to sit down with them and talk to them about their problems. But you know one thing that Satan is doing when he says to me, boy, you ain't good for nothing. When he says you ain't worthy of anything but death, Satan's telling the truth. I ain't good for nothing. I ain't worthy of nothing. I ain't good enough. I ain't smart enough. I ain't special in and of myself. But bless God, I glory in the fact that my salvation, that my forgiveness, that my worth, that my value is not based on my righteousness, but on Jesus and his price he paid on Calvary's hill. You see, if I was dependent on my worth, I couldn't get through breakfast. There ain't enough inside of me to get me through breakfast, and I don't even eat breakfast. But with Jesus, we'd make it all the way to glory. I want you to look at that next statement real quickly. He is faithful and just. He's faithful and just. Uh, now, I don't want you to read that quicker than you can read it. I want you to think about that just a minute as we close. The statement that he is faithful and just, it, it says... An awful lot. Because, think about this with me. If God excuses 
our sins, he's not faithful. Because in his word, he says the wages of sin is what? Death. And so if he doesn't punish sin with his wrath, then he is not a faithful God. If he doesn't punish sin, then he is not a just God because he said he was going to and he didn't. And God does not have any inerrance, any errancies or inaccuracies in his word. And so he can't be faithful and just if he just excuses sin. So what that tells us is that he has to pour out his wrath upon all sin. All sin must be punished with death. All sin must have the wrath of God poured out upon it. All sin. Every single one of them. There is not one sin, if he is faithful and just, that does not have to be punished. That is your sin, my sin, that is Abraham's sin, that is Peter's sin, that is your children's children's sin. It must all be punished if God is faithful and just. And so how can we have salvation if we must have the punishment of death for our sin and we are all sinners? If we confess He is faithful and just. How we can do it? We can let Jesus do it for us. See, Jesus already paid it all on Calvary's hill, on a skull-shaped hill called Golgotha. He hung on a cross. He spread His arms open wide and the wrath of God was poured out upon His Son on that hill. That wrath was poured out upon Jesus so that you don't have to take that wrath. That wrath was poured out upon the Savior so that you didn't have to hang there. Jesus spread his arm, breathed his last and said it's finished. And he died the, the, the penalty of sin that you wouldn't have to die. All sin must be punished if God is faithful and just. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so the question this morning for us is this. Will you pay for your sins yourself? Or will you accept the penalty that Jesus Christ already paid? The question is that simple. Believer, church member, good child of God, I ask you, is your life marked with confession? Is your life marked with a regular, real confession of your sins? Where you see your sins the way that God sees your sins. If it is not, that is why your communion with God is not where you wish it was. That's why you don't feel the way that you used to feel. And if you don't feel the way that you wish to feel, you don't have the relationship with Jesus that you wish you had. You're not walking as closely with him as you wish you could. If the time of invitation comes and God puts that on your heart and you don't confess your sin before him, you're quenching the Holy Spirit in your life. Now, I'm not saying you have to come to the altar. I'm saying you have to confess your sins before God. But if you're in the house this morning and you've never been saved, you've never cried out before Jesus, I want to be yours then you're saying, I want to take the penalty of sin on myself. I want to take the wrath of God for my sin myself, even though Jesus already paid it all. Would you come this morning and say, I take Jesus. Let us pray. Father God, Lord, we stand before you. So thankful for your word. So thankful for your mercy, Lord. 
so thankful that you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, Lord. God, would you move your people to confession this very morning if something separates us from the communion with you that we should have, God, move us to a time of confession where we would see our sin the way that you see our sin, Lord Jesus. And if somebody here has never cried out for the forgiveness that you offer by your grace, then would you convict them and move them this morning to come before you and accept you as their Savior. And it's in your precious name that we pray. Amen. Thanks again for joining in. We sincerely hope that this has blessed you in some way. If you have any further questions, feel free to give us a call or check us out on the web at www.rockyvalleybaptist.org. Thank you and have a blessed day.